0: Good afternoon. Who is it that you listen to? What, what sort of institutions or sources would you say you trust? You know, there's a lot of talk of echo chambers. We're all creating our own little silos of sources of fact or information, whether it's uh, you get all your news from your Facebook feed, not realizing that's all your friends that you have chosen, right? So that's a nice little echo chamber. Or another way to ask this question is, um, if you read something, and it's from a certain source, which source gets you the most excited? Like if you were to read something from the New York Times, are you, you just assume that's true. That's absolutely true. Or if you watch Fox News and you hear a report, you just assume that that's true. You get so excited, you don't have to do any more digging that's your source, your trusted source of speaking truth into your life. What is that for you? There's lots of different um, avenues we could go, right? If you hear a story on NPR, is that truth? Or if you hear it from somewhere else. Well, the, the congregation in, that this letter was written to seems to be at a kind of crisis of who do they trust? What should they trust? Should they trust the Old Testament law and that's enough? And God was done? Or is there something unique going on in Jesus Christ? Is there something unique going on with the Son of God? And so we get to look at this passage that ends up giving us our, the implication itself, which is to look who's speaking to you. Do not neglect it. Do not drift away. But first, he goes to great lengths to talk about just who these angels are and why that's important, and then who is the Son Jesus Christ. And so we're going to get a chance to look through that and see what that should mean for how we attend to the source of Scripture, the source source of truth, the Word of God himself. Let's pray and, and jump into this passage. Father, we do thank you for... Uh, This day, and we thank you that uh, you have sent the exact imprint of your nature, the radiance of your glory in Jesus Christ to redeem us and to speak to us, Lord, that he is the final good prophet. And so, Lord, we do ask that you would speak now by your Holy Spirit that these words would come alive, that you would meet us, you know us better than we know ourselves, and so we ask that you would meet us where we are that you would comfort those who are struggling, who are brokenhearted, comfort us by your word, and that you would challenge those who are stubborn and who are hardhearted, that we could hear from you and you alone, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so, I'm going to break it up just into, into sort of two main sections and then look at the implication, because in this problem of what source to trust, i want to look at first this source of angels. And it can be kind of weird. What, what is the deal with angels and why is he so concerned about it? Well, um, he, he quotes just a couple very brief verses to talk about angels. And there's not a lot that we learn about angels in Scripture. But what's clear is that, one, they are servants and that they are temporal. They're part of creation just like us. And so in verse 7 where he's quoting a psalm, that's what he's after. He's after this point of saying, look guys, these angels are just amongst creation like anyone else. They are subject to decay, they are perishable, and they are the ones that it came to be believed around uh, this time period, and you see it in, in Galatians 3 and Acts 7 as well, that the angels were involved in the revelation at Mount Sinai. And so they're connected to being messengers of God's law, so when Stephen, who is the uh, famous martyr in the Book of Acts, when he's giving this whole summary of the Old Testament, he talks about the law which was given through the angels, and and Paul does the same thing in Galatians three, and he contrasts the law, which was given through an intermediary, these angels, with what we have in Christ, which is not given. And so for Paul, it's a similar point as with Hebrews. Guys, the angels, it's almost like if if a U.S. president has an issue to deal with, he may send a diplomat, and depending on how important that issue is, he's going to send a higher-up diplomat. He's going to send the VP if it's a serious issue, but then he's going to come himself if he really needs to be there. That's something of the contrast that we have here is that, yeah, he, he's not denying the fact that God was acting and speaking through the law, through these angels, but don't forget that they are servants of something greater, ministering spirits, as he says at the end of, of chapter 1. Um, now, you may not struggle with trusting angels too much, but in the, in the book of Hebrews, let me just point out... Um, The main issue is that they would not fall back from having professed Christ to then not professing Christ. Because the temptation is to fall back into something, we think, of a Jewish uh, religion that didn't have to make these exclusive claims about Christ, didn't have to face any sort of persecution that they would face from the Roman authorities, which the Jews wouldn't have had. So there's this temptation to sort of fall back into a more comfortable lifestyle. And so you can think of these angels, these servants of of God, of of providing the law, as once Christ comes, the temptation is to just go to any other source of self-salvation. Because if they're going to go back to what the angels gave, they're going to act as if Christ didn't come. They're acting as if what Christ did, that God himself coming and taking and dealing with our sin, that he didn't actually do what they had previously believed he had done. And so this temptation, whether you're struggling yourself with with angels or not, we all struggle with this sort of temptation. To trust some source or get more excited about some news that we hear or to trust a person or an institution over Christ. Because we think they're going to give us something. We think they're going to give us some sort of salvation or pleasure or meaning Greater than Christ. At best, they are meant to point beyond themselves. And so, that's that's um, to contrast that with the angels. I want to look, and we're obviously going to spend a lot more time with all of these quotes that he's pulling from to talk about the Son. Before we do that, though, let me just say. Uh, This section is really explaining verse 4 in the book of Hebrews, which we didn't hear. So a couple weeks couple weeks ago when I preached on the first four verses of Hebrews, it's an amazing, amazing passage where he talks about long ago, in many ways and in many times, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he gets this great climax, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. And he calls the Son the exact imprint of his nature. So we're not getting a, a false idea of God, or there's not, he's not leaving something out. He calls him the radiance of his glory. So God is speaking to us through the, the thing that shines when God speaks, which is Christ. He is the creator and sustainer. But then in verse 4 he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, receiving, and then there's this business of his name, receiving a name that is a much higher, superior name than that of angels. And so once he says that, then he goes to this great length to talk about why his name that he received is much greater than angels. Now I'll confess to you, this week I had a, a, a little bit of a light bulb when I was looking at some of these passages because I thought reading this uh, chapter, he's just talking about how great Christ is. And Christ is a lot greater than angels, and he's a lot greater than a lot of other things. And later in Hebrews, it talks about how he's greater than Moses and greater than the law and the priests. And those are, those are true. But if that's all we get, we're really getting the right doctrine from the wrong text. Because he's actually after something different here. It's not just that he's greater. Because this is actually about what happens when he is exalted as king, when he is enthroned, having ascended to the right hand. And so I don't want us to lose this fact of what happens after he ascends, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high, like he says in verse 4. He says that, and he says, because of that, he has received a greater name. Now let me tell you about that greater name. And now every passage that applies to the Son of God has to do with kingship. He's being made king, which confirmed to me that, yeah, that's what he means when he says he sat down at the right hand. He sits down because he's done, and he's at the right hand because he's the one with power and authority. He's the king. He's the new king of this world so, keep that in the back of your mind as we look through all these Old Testament passages. He seems to be just stringing one passage after another. It seems at first like he's just talking about how great Christ is. He's actually talking about how Christ is king now. All right, so, keeping that in mind, uh, the first quote is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is is one of the favorites. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, which gets quoted later, those are probably the two favorites uh, for New Testament writers. Uh, And so, Psalm 2... Talks about uh, well, I'm going to read a part of it. It starts out by saying this: Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. And so, uh, the earliest Christians realized this is actually what's happened with Christ. That it's as if the nations of the earth came up against the Lord and His anointed. But then God says, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. They will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and then the part he quotes, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Now, as we think through these Old Testament passages, you want to think both of what it would have been used for, what it was written for then, and why is Hebrews saying this applies to the son after he sat down in power, after he did his work, it applies to him. And so it would have been used most likely at some sort of coronation ceremony where, when Israel is celebrating a new king like David. They didn't have a lot of great kings, but they had kings, and they would have had coronation ceremonies, and so this is celebrating it as if God is saying once again, today I am anointing you, and I will make you kings of the earth. And so the the New Testament and the Jews for the last few hundred years up until that were waiting for that promise to really come back into effect because they were in exile. They needed a new, real son of David. The book of Hebrews is saying that's what's happened. But it's not just what's happened when Christ came. That's what's happened when Christ was enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Behold, today you are my son. Today I have begotten you, and I will make you king of the earth. All the nations will be your inheritance. It changes it a little bit in how we, how we read that passage, but, but it's obvious that he's getting all of this Power from the Father being handed to him. And the next quote is very similar in its application to to the Son of David. Because the next quote is from the promise of all promises as far as the kings were concerned. This next quote, where he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, don't read that as, oh, that's nice, he's going to love him. No, that's a quote from 2 Samuel 7, when God finally says to David, I will never let your throne go empty. Because David starts out in this section, David David is the one who wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a throne, he wants to build a temple for God. And God turns around and says, well first he says, I didn't ask you to do that, why do you think I need a house? I don't need a house not made with hands. But then he says, no, David, you're not going to build me a house, though your son will. I'm going to build your house. And your throne and your kingdom will never end. And so in 2 Samuel 7, he says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And I will establish his kingdom. I will raise up your offspring after you. I will be to him a father. And he he shall be to me a son. Hebrews is saying this has just been fulfilled. That thing that was promised to David about a thousand years ago. That the Israelites were really struggling in the past several hundred years of, how is this still true, God? We need your new Messiah. They were hoping and hoping for a new Messiah as the son of David. They assumed that this crucifixion and death meant Jesus was not that. And Hebrews is saying, no. He was raised from the dead. He ascended on high. He's this king. He's the one in power. All right, there's a few more passages, and I wouldn't spend time on, the, on all these Old Testament passages if it wasn't amazing. So I hope you're getting a sense of what God is saying to us here in Christ. And so there is one, a bit of a bizarre one, if you look up in the context, but when he says, um, what's the passage where, where he gives this introduction of when he brought his firstborn, so in verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, we don't have that much time to go into all of it. We can talk more at the well if you want. But basically, what's going on here is this is a quote from um, Deuteronomy, Moses' song, right before he dies, he's sending Israel off into the promised land, and he's celebrating, Moses is, is singing, celebrating God's so this is, an, this is something that is true of God. He's saying, let's all come together and worship him. Let's rejoice. Praise God. He saved Israel out of Egypt. We let all God's angels worship him. Or let all the sons of God, in some translations, worship him. Hebrews is saying that's true of the son. Hebrews is saying, remember how Moses praised God for saving Israel out of Egypt and bringing them through the Red Sea? told to worship Him, and you were told to rejoice with the angels to worship Him? Well, just as you have been brought through the Red Sea of your own sin, just as there there has now been a new Passover, the Passover of the new Lamb, and the new blood that wipes away your sin, remember the Hebrews passage, after making purification for sins, He sat down. So having been brought through the purification for sins, he sits down. Having been brought through the new Passover, we can sing Moses' song of deliverance because the Son has delivered us. He is worthy of our worship. That's who this Son is. When He's entered into His kingship, He is worthy of worship. And then in Psalm 45, which is the Psalm that you heard read the Old Testament text, this is actually a love song to the king um, where where the king is praised for being beautiful and it, it's at a, uh, a wedding. And so the king and the, the bride-to-be are both being praised as these uh, in, incredible uh, partners. And it's like this scribe is just riffing off the beauty and the promises that are made to the king. So... Um, if you're ever looking for, like, new angles into how should you praise Christ, Psalm 45 gives us a, a pretty unique angle. It starts off, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. he goes on and on about how he wants to sort of adore the king. Actually, remember, I just, I'm just now remembering this. I was probably a Christian for a year or less in college. And I went to a showing of Romeo and Juliet. And, man, I was really struck. I thought, why can't we write verses like that about Jesus? And it's, you know, it's kind of kind of that naive, like, honeymoon type of Christian. But there's, I think there's something beautiful about that. It's not unlike what's going on in Psalm 45, this inc- incredible passion. He goes on then to... Uh, The writer of Hebrews quotes these, the verse in uh, verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. So he's focused again on the fact that Christ is king. That Israel's king was considered considered to be acting on behalf of God. He was being praised. He had this throne that never ended. And so now this is true of Christ. We ought to celebrate him as the anointed one, the one who inherits a kingdom that does not end. In contrast to the angels, in contrast to all these other sources that we uh, focus on, all these other sources that let us, we let lead us to anxiety or worry, in contrast to those sources, we have a source whose kingdom does not end, whose throne is beautiful and upright. Just. He quotes then from another psalm in Psalm 102, which is also meant to suggest that his throne, his being, does not uh, decay, does not end. And he celebrates again the fact that he is enthroned forever. Psalm 102 is a lament where he's crying out. He says things like, I am just filled with tears and eating ashes, but you, O God, but you, O Lord are enthroned forever. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither like grass. But you, O oh God, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. So it seems like the, the, the issue there with Psalm 102 is that he is realizing his limitation. He is faced with this deep, incredible isolation and loneliness and suffering. But then the verse that Hebrews quotes says, but God. It's a great interjection that we have throughout Scripture. But God is the one who is enthroned forever. That's what we can say now. of Christ. It's quite amazing. And this final one from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 gets quoted all the time uh, in the New Testament. I would encourage you to, to, to read it and remember it and look out for it. The Lord meaning Yahweh, the divine name, the Father, the Lord, the special name, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is one of the verses that Jesus uses to outwit the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees keep trying to trap him. And he says, all right, I'll answer your questions if you answer me this. How, does, how can David say, my Lord, said the Lord said to my Lord, if, they, if the Messiah is going to be David's son? And so they're just confused and they don't get it. We are told over and over that Psalm 110 is fulfilled in Christ. Why? Because Psalm 110 has, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And it goes on and on. But this, especially what God says to now we know the Son. He is saying, sit at my right hand, meaning sit at the place where my power dwells until I make your enemies your footstool. That's what Jesus is doing right now. And this is the thing that can transform our entire perspective on our life, our perspective on our suffering, our perspective on what is going on with the church right now, is that Jesus is the ascended king. He's enthroned, he is exalted, and he is now waiting As more and more people are drawn to repentance and faith, he is waiting until all of his enemies are made his footstool, are subdued that they may worship him as they are meant to do. So we have this long string of Old Testament passages that show us who God's son is that having ascended, having done his work, he doesn't have to keep standing and keep doing his work, he can sit down at the right hand of God, that he is the king of the heavenly world. He is the king of the world to come, which will come up in the next passage. He is the king of, the emphasis is not actually on the current world. The emphasis is on, To come as the world to come breaks into this world through the gospel and through the church. So he reigns, but he's waiting to fully reign by sight, even though he reigns fully by faith. He's reigning, he reigns fully in the the heavenly world, but he's waiting now as a time of repentance and patience and kindness hear in other places of God's kindness as he waits for us to respond to the new king. So what should we do with all this? There's a couple implications, Um, and Hebrews makes it clear, first of all, his intention, the writer's intention, um, he writes, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let me say a couple things. One is, um, this is the first of several warnings in the book of Hebrews. If you've ever read through Hebrews, there's some parts where you think, what am I supposed to do with this? This is the first of, relatively speaking, easier warning compared to what's going to come later, um, of a warning to his readers to not Drift away, not neglect. And we're going to talk a lot more about it as I get through Hebrews, but um, it's very striking that he would exalt Christ and go out of his way to say all of these things that say Christ is the king and then give these stark warnings, some of the starkest warnings in the New Testament. And you've got to think the reason is because he's so convinced That Christ really is the exact imprint of God's nature. That Christ really is this final, perfect, sufficient revelation. He wants you to know what more are you looking for? Don't neglect this because this is as good as it gets. This is everything. Now, either it's really, really good and we need to understand why it's so good or we're not quite getting it. Because it's almost like he's going all in. I mean, he's putting all his poker chips in and saying, guys, there's nothing more to expect. There was a great salvation being declared by the angels, but now, now, there's not going to be any option. There's not going to be any escape. If you refuse Christ, if you don't trust Christ for your salvation, what other hope is there going to be? Look this Christ is, look at what he has done. What more can you hope for? Do you realize what is at stake? Do you realize that God, in human form, has dealt with your sin? That he has dealt with your sin finally. So finally that he can sit down and say his work is done. Don't take that lightly. Don't forget what is at stake. Notice also how he talks about how it has been heard. He says it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't claim to be an apostle. We don't know who exactly the writer of Hebrews is. There's lots of of speculation. None of them too convincing. We don't know. We don't. It's definitely not Paul, but um, there's lots of other guesses. But he doesn't claim here to be an apostle, to have, been, to have really heard from the Lord. He claims it was attested to us by those guys, like an apostle. Attested being the same word of it was made valid legally in the in the the, vest, the verse above. But then he says, God bore witness also through signs and wonders and various miracles. So notice what's going on here. There's a word that is being proclaimed, and then there are deeds that are validating it. Now he talks about signs and wonders, which is a a classic phrase used throughout Scripture. Um, There's no reason for us to expect the same signs and wonders that were going on in the apostles' time, like raising people from the dead, or striking people dead for judgment, or the assurance that they had for certain healings and miracles. It, that was, an, it was being attested then. But still the principle holds that the word that we are proclaiming here is attested by our deeds, by our community. And so if we are a part of this, this is how it gets attested to more and more, that the God who speaks finally in Christ, this promise that we have heard from the real thing, it changes the community that we're a part of. The deed attests to the word, just as the word attests to the deed. So he's making us this community, which leads us sort of to the the conclusion, which is asking ourselves, what could possibly lead us to drift away from this? What is it that we would... Why is it that we would neglect such a great salvation? Now, he uses the word drift intentionally. And if you think about drift, drift is gradual, little by little, and slowly. You don't just wake up one day and say, forget Christ. You make small decisions that seem minor, that end up building up, that end up changing your character and your love and what you want, and you're drifting. You're drifting away slowly away from the dock. When you look at who Christ is, don't drift away. Don't forget who the person is that we are hearing from. I think that's sort of central for me. When I start to drift, when I start to neglect and worry and not... not Try to take advantage of all the means of grace that God has given us. It's, it's because I forget the person of Christ. Who he is. The fact that God himself is speaking to us. Just like the way I started, just like those sources, New York Times or Fox News or whatever. Just like when you realize this is a reputable reporter from the Times. I'm going to trust him. How much more should we not neglect away When the ascended king speaks to us by his word, attests to us who he is by the deeds of the community. This is indeed a great salvation that we get to be a part of. Don't forsake it. Come to Christ. Let's take a moment and reflect as we get to come to Christ at his table together as a body. Let's pray.